In every storm, there's a sermon playing out like a parable across the canvas of sky, telling of the awesome power of the one whose judgment are just, but whose mercies are thereby all the more scandalous and unexpected, and whose tender love for us is beyond comprehension. Indeed, we praise you, O Lord, that having both might and right to crush whatever within us would assert itself against you, you instead crushed yourself, and by that act offered us life, taking the brunt of such a ferocious judgment into your own form, and shielding us from forever from what our treason so rightly deserved. Now may these mighty winds, these lightning strikes, these crashing calls of thunder, these hard rains, and their fierce beauty set in us awe. Their witness rightly reminding us of that just verdict that we never have to face. The ferocity of these elements in the inverse testament to the affections of the one whose love is strong for us and now has become a shield against the coming storm. You, O Christ, who is our peace, cradle us now, even as you, even as you would cradle us in that final reckoning, calming every fear by your nearness as we watch with wondering eyes this storm-told storm story of great judgment and even greater mercy. Yes, Lord, thank you for the mercy that you give us. We don't deserve it. Lord, I pray for all those that are in the path of this storm, Dorian. Lord, I pray, God, that you'd have your hand over them, Lord. Lord, I pray for others that are in the midst of storms of life, but they would feel your grace and your mercy. We think about all those involved in yet another shooting in West Texas yesterday. All the people are affected by that, Lord. Lord, the, the fall is all around us, and without you, we are hopeless. But in you, there's great hope. In you, there is great mercy. There's great love. There is peace, and there is eternal life. And so I pray this morning as we open your word that you would draw us to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our purpose is going to come up on the screen. So if you say this purpose with me, it's to reach and transform people by the power of the gospel in biblical community. And we've been going through a series called One Story, the one story of the Bible. We spent the first three weeks looking at creation, we looked at the foundation of why we believe creation. We looked at uh, some of the other reasons why we think that's important and why we should believe in creation, how it is foundational for our faith. And last week we looked at the most important verse in the Bible is the, is the first one. This week we make the transition into chapter 2, the fall. And we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at the fall, and then the following two weeks looking at redemption, and the final two weeks looking at consummation, the return, and the glory of Christ. The goal of this series uh, is to help you be able to know the one story of the Bible, and to be able to confidently communicate that with other people. It's also to allow you to ask questions that will hopefully lead into gospel conversations. All of our action steps have been questions that we want you to ask your friends and neighbors. And this week there is uh, no change to that. We're having you ask a different question. The question that we want you to ask your friends, your neighbors, anyone that you see. And it's a good week to ask this, right? Because people are preparing for a hurricane. They're, they're running around a little frantic. You can ask them, what, what's wrong with our world? What's wrong with our world? And hopefully this will lead into a gospel present, presentation, a gospel conversation. And that's the, the second goal of the series, that you'll be able to ask these questions and spur you on to sharing the good news of the gospel. The point for this week is that the fall wrecked everything. Now, 
there are a lot of things in my life that I can see that would point to the fall. But the number one thing is right here. This is a bunch of Legos. Didn't wear socks this morning on purpose. You ever do this? Oh, yeah. This shows to me, and I love when they stick to the bottom of your feet, too. That's even better. That. <laughs> thank you. That's my son Luke blaming his brother right there. That's <laughs> Levi's Legos. Oh, Okay, thanks, buddy. There you go. See how quickly it points to the fall? If you've ever done that, you realize that we're not living in the perfect world anymore. You see, the fall wrecked everything. I mean, you ever think about all the things that are wrecked in our world and with death and domestic violence and racism and divorce and hurricanes? Why did that happen? We had a perfect creation. We looked at it the last three weeks, a perfect creation. What happened to that perfect creation? Well, figuratively, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they they punched God in the face. They, they punched him in the face. They said, we don't want to do things your way. We're going to do it our way. And the seriousness of an act is not only just the act itself, but who it's perpetrated against. Realize that? See, I'll, I'll give an example. If, if a student was in a class and he punched one of his classmates, well, he'd get in trouble and go to the principal's office. But if he was at the principal's office and he punched the principal, there would be further, deeper consequences, right? So they turn him over to the resource officer, the police officer at the school, and the kid punches the police officer. He's probably going to get arrested, right? And then later on, the, the, the president is in town doing a rally, and the kid punches the president. He's probably going to face death, maybe, uh, by Secret Service taking him out. See, who we perpetrate against is, is, leads to deeper consequences. And Adam and Eve punched God in the face. They punched God in the face with their actions. And because of that, there's huge consequences that changed everything about earth. Changed everything about our lives. Changed everything of the, the way that things were going in a perfect creation. As I looked at this, this scripture uh, that I've looked at many times in Genesis 3, my first reaction is, come on, Adam and Eve, you blew it. There was a perfect creation. And then God quickly convicts me. Because if it wasn't Adam and Eve, it was going to be you, Andy. Because you don't follow what my word says. You don't follow after my ways. You are in sin, in desperate need of a Savior. And so I hope this morning as we look at Genesis 3, we'll be able to see that, yes, Adam and Eve sinned. And yes, it caused sin throughout the rest of time. But we're in that sin too, and we're in desperate need of a Savior also. So we're going to look in Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to read through all of... Uh, the, whole, the whole chapter of Genesis 3, it won't take us too long, because I want you to see the whole picture. I know many of you are very familiar with the story, but I want you to see some of the details that we'll pick out in the story that can apply to our lives as we're going through uh, our lives together as a church. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave some fruit to me from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between, you and, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And all the women said, thanks, Eve. With, you pain, with pain you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through, the, through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will not eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made gar garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said to the man, and said, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to, guide, to guard the way to the tree of life. Wow. Lots of work through there, right? Man, it's so interesting that before the act that Eve did, there was an attitude of rebellion. You notice that? Before she did the act, she has this attitude like she's better than God and Satan uh, spurs her on towards that. See in the first verses there, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, God gave them all of this perfect creation. He just gave one rule. Don't eat from that one tree. Don't eat from that one tree. And I know many have questioned me before and said, why did God even make that? Why did God have something that they could be tempted by? Well, God wanted to have a personal relationship, a real relationship. He didn't want to force them to love him. He wanted them to choose love. And so he gave them a, a, a way to choose a way out against, against him. And they did that pretty quickly, didn't they? And 
Satan, like he still does with us. And now listen, Satan is a fallen angel. He doesn't have all the powers of the evil one. In fact, he has a very limited playbook, but that playbook works. So he keeps going back to it. And he tries to get us to doubt God's word just like he does here with Eve. And he says, did, did God really say that? He starts planting seeds of doubt. He gets Eve to focus on the one thing that God said no about. Not to focus on all the things he said yes to. All the amazing things in our perfect creation. But no, focus on the one no. Focus on the one thing that God said not to do. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You notice something there? The woman, Eve, leaves out a word. She says we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. She doesn't say all fruit or any fruit. She leaves that out. She already is starting to forget and starting to twist what God actually said. And this is what happens in our own life. That we know the truth, we know the way, the truth, and the life. But seeds of doubt come in. Did, did God really promise that he would get me through the storm? Did God really promise that he's going to work through my life and the pain either in this life or the next? Did God really say that he's sending a seeking and saving Savior for me? Did that really happen? These seeds of doubt ever happen to you? I mean, they happen to me. Am I the only one? They happen to me. I, I feel those seeds of doubt. Where, where is God's faithfulness? And this is the same playbook that he uses on Eve. He uses on us. Try to get us to doubt God's word. We know the truth if we're believers in Christ. But he tries to get us to doubt it. And that's exactly what's happening here with Eve. Exactly what's happening here. He approaches the woman and he questions God's word and you see this attitude of rebellion before the act happens and Eve starts agreeing you will not surely die the serpent said to the woman for God knows when you eat your eyes will be open you'll be like God knowing good and evil and you can just see Eve saying you know what you're right I mean it's just fruit I mean, it's no big deal why did God even say that he gave us this rule. Why do we have this rule? Why, why is that even in place? This, this happens oftentimes in my brain too. Like, why does God want me to do it? Why does God want me to obey? Why does God want me to do that? This just seems so much more comfortable. This seems so much easier. I mean, this looks nice. Why don't I do that? See, this attitude of rebellion starts happening, and, and the evil one is starting to sneer at her faith. Really? You can't eat from that tree? Really? See, when college students go off the, to, to school, they're often met with, with opposition uh, for their faith, but it's not with some reasonable argument. It's with sneering. It's for sneering from classmates or professors or other people that are in their lives, and they say, really? Do you really believe this? Do you really believe the story of this Bible? Do you really believe that Adam and Eve was really true? Do you really believe Noah? Do you really believe a flood actually happened? It's sneering. Do you believe Jesus really came? I mean, he's a good teacher, but he's, is he really a savior? The retired pastor and great apologetic and theologian, uh, Tim Keller, he said, for every hundred people who object to Christianity, only one really has a rational argument. The 99, 99 just sneer. And that's what the evil one is doing here. 
He's sneering at her. He's trying to, to tell her that God is a liar. You notice that Satan doesn't question the existence of God. He knows God exists. He knows his power. He knows his might. That's never even a question for Satan. It's just to try to change Adam and Eve's attitude towards to, to, to knowing the truth, to calling God a liar. And that's exactly what happens to us. We get seeds of doubt, and he tries to tell us that, that God's the ultimate killjoy, right? That you'd have so much more fun if you weren't following after God. I mean, this, this happened in my life when it took me 20 years of my life to follow after God. And I was at Flagler and, and partying and thinking I was having a good time. And I remember being witnessed to by many people that were very bold with the gospel. And I remember thinking in my head, yeah, but if I trust in God, then I won't have any more fun. I mean, I'm feeling empty. I mean, there's no doubt that I'm feeling empty, but the little bit of fun I'm having, it's going to be taken away because I have to carry around a huge Bible and sing praise songs all day long. I'm not going to have any fun. That was the trick that the evil one was trying to tell me. And he does that same thing. He does this with single people. We know, those of you that are here that are single, that you're following after God, you know the truth, but you feel those seeds of doubt. You hear those seeds of doubt. But listen, everyone else is sleeping around. I mean, God, I have to wait till marriage, really? How am I going to do that? I mean, it's, it's, it's more fun to hook up. He puts those seeds of doubt. You know, young people that go off to college, they know deep down that follow after, the, the ones that follow after Jesus, that they shouldn't get drunk every weekend. But those seeds of doubt come in. Everyone else is doing it. Everyone else seems to be having fun with it. And this is a way that I can have fun too. It happens with, with married people too, right? You know, the, the marriage that was once exciting has now cooled off and it's not really thriving. Things are really struggling and now there's someone at work or someone in your neighborhood that's getting you a little special attention. Those seeds of doubt come in and am I really making a commitment for a lifetime? Am I really, do I really need to do that? Do those vows really matter? Those seeds of doubt come in. Satan doesn't have a big playbook. It's the same playbook that he uses with us, that he used with Eve, that he used with Adam get us to doubt his goodness, to get us to doubt that God is good. See, the religious, they buy the lie. Those of you that may struggle with a little bit of religiousness, that you believe that God, because of the way that you live, because you have everything together, because you're, you're, you go to church a lot, because you go to small group a lot, because you do the study all the time, because you're serving, that you deserve God's love and his mercy. Satan uses that as a lie, too. He also does it for the sinners. That they doubt the goodness of God and they believe running away from God is the way to have a happy and fun life. They buy the lie, too. See, that attitude, it leads to the act. And every time we have the attitude towards sin, it's going to lead to the act if we don't uh, have, have the power and the strength to say... I am powerless. Got that? It's not the power and the strength that you need to fight against sin. It's the power and the strength to say, I am powerless and I need you, Jesus. Because when you don't do that, you fall into sin. And this is exactly what happened here with Adam and Eve. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, 
for food and pleasing to the eye. See, she already had the attitude of sin, and now she's seeing something that's pleasing to the eye. You know where this is going to go because she's already made that decision in her mind. It's also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Look at this next part. What does it say? What does it say? Who was with her? What the heck is Adam doing? I mean, here he sees his woman falling into temptation, and what does he do? He's passive. Guys, godly men, we need to take a, a page out of this holy book, and we need to follow it here. We need to follow, we need to learn from what it says here, because it says that he was with her, yet he does nothing. He's not saying, stop, I care about you, don't do this. We love God. We're going to ruin creation. Don't do it, Eve. He doesn't do that, does he? He just stands by her, watches her fall into sin, does nothing. We have to be men that stand up for the word of God, that get on our knees and say that we cannot do it in our own strength, that we're going to protect, we're going to provide, we're going to help our family through the power of Jesus. And Adam didn't do that. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. Can you imagine that moment? Imagine that. You naked, girl. We need to do something about this. I don't know what just happened, but my eyes are open, and, and we need to cover ourselves because now we are in sin. This is cosmic rebellion. Rebellion against God. And it happens when we think that we're the captain of the ship. We're the one that's in charge. God is my co-pilot. Because I'm the pilot. God, get in the passenger seat. You realize how crazy that is? And how dangerous that is? Yeah, we all fall into it. I do it all the time. I've done it this week. Probably done it today. You know, God, I I'm in control my way. Now, we would never verbally say that. But in our attitudes, in our hearts, we say, no, I, I think I know better. You guys ever see that movie 127 Hours? If you didn't, I'm about to spoil all of it right now. It's, it'll save two hours of your life. Basically, this canyoneer goes on a hike, and, uh, and he goes on a hike, and he gets trapped by a boulder for six days. There's 127 hours. Then he cuts off his arm, and he almost bleeds to death, but he survives. The end. 127 hours. There it is. The whole thing. There's a, <laughs> there's, a, there's a part in the beginning of the movie, though, where this guy, I mean, he is strutting his stuff, man. He's got it all together. Good-looking guy. He doesn't tell anybody he's going on the hike, by the way. Independent. Not telling anybody on this hike a million times. I'm going to go do it on my own. I'm not going to tell my friends. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to get out there. I'm strong. He sees some girls while he goes out to, to do canyoneering and starts flirting with them a little bit. And the girls are giving him attention. Oh, man, he's a man. He's a man. And then this boulder falls on him. And he's stuck. He's trapped. And he's trapped there for six days. And he realizes that He's not going to get out alive, and so he does the unthinkable, and he cuts off his own arm so that he can have a chance of escape. And there's a scene at the end of the movie that looks a lot different than the beginning. This 
cocky guy, strong, everything uh, was going his way. He has it all together. He's now bleeding to death. He's calling out for help. And that's such a picture of, of who we are. See, we like to think and show people we got it all together. Oh, yeah. I see you guys every Sunday morning. You're arguing all the way here, you know, because you're running late. You can't get the kids together, and you're fighting about something. Where are we going to eat after church? Or should we even go to church? You're fighting all the way here, but boom, you hit that parking lot. Woo! Oh, yeah. You get out. Your family looking all perfect. Oh, man, we don't want pastor to think we don't have it together. We don't want our friends to think we don't have it together. You all look all nice, all nice and dressed, smiling all big. Know you? I live in a family. You're not fooling anybody. We're a wreck. It's okay. It's okay. We're a wreck. The quicker that we realize that, the quicker we'll run to a savior. See, the more we try to pretend like we have it all together, the more that we try to deny that we don't have it all together, the more that we try to deny our sin, the more we will stuff Jesus in the corner. The more we'll punch him in the face, the more we'll say we don't need him. And for the sake of our souls, we have to stop that for his glory and for us to have peace and joy and eternal life. We're in desperate need. We're in desperate need of a Savior. And we have to run to him. If we look at this story, we see the amazing acts of God's grace, even in the midst of death. You see, it says here that when they eat of it, they'll surely die. And many of you might be thinking, well, Pastor Andrew, they didn't die. Well, they didn't die immediately because of God's grace and mercy, but, but they died. It's like cutting a flower. I mean, once you cut the flower, it starts the process of death. It doesn't die immediately, but it's, it's going to die. And that's what happened here with them. They were facing three kinds of death. They, they had spiritual death. They were Hiding from God. Man, this is just, I mean, just imagine this scene. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking around in the garden in the cool of the day as they hid from God among the trees in the garden. You ever have those hiding moments? You ever do something against God and get that conviction? Man, I just wish I could hide somewhere from God. Where can you hide from God, right? The Lord God called out to the man. Where are you? You think God didn't know where they were? God knew exactly where they were. But he, he wanted them to feel a little bit of this. He wanted them to understand a little bit more what they did. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That spiritual death they faced, then the physical death that they faced, that the death that they were never going to face physically now, their bodies are starting to decay. And guess what? Our bodies are too. Some of you don't like to hear that. Some of you are doing everything you possibly can to fight against it. You're losing that battle, aren't you? We're decaying. We're decaying. And we will too face death. And they faced eternal death. That on their own, they were going to uh, be away from God for all eternity. 
But then we see the goodness of God, even in the midst of sin, even in the midst of the worst thing that has ever happened since the creation of the world, right? God in his grace and his mercy. Did you hear what I just read? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking around the garden. Isn't that interesting? God could have left them alone in their sin. He could have said, you know what? They chose not to love me. They're done. They just go their own way. But he didn't do that, did he? Almost immediately he goes as a seeking and saving God to be with them in the garden. That's the first time we really see the, see the gospel of a seeking and saving Savior. And then the second time is he's talking to the serpent. He said, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Do you hear that, dear people? We're on the winning team. We can go through all kinds of troubles in this world. All kinds of heartaches, all kinds of storms, all kinds of difficulties. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are on the winning team. We will be victorious at the end. What an amazing thing that is. Amen. We are victorious. I mean, we know you're going to win. What an amazing thing that is. Because when you go through hard things in life, you know ultimately you're going to have victory. I love how... The first Adam sinned, but the second Adam in Jesus, when he came, he lived a perfect life. And he came to redeem us. See, the, the first Adam refused to yield to the will of God, that, that he wanted to do things on his own. He wanted to go his own way. But the second Adam, Jesus, did things totally differently. Jesus was in the garden too. Do you remember this? He was in the garden too, and he knew what the weight of taking all of our sin was going to be like. At least, at least he had some idea about it. And he had so much strain and so much stress. He's sweating blood, and he asked for any other way. But he says, not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. He runs to God in the most desperate time. And I'm so thankful that he did because the first Adam longed to replace God. But the second Adam in Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He made himself nothing and took the place of a servant even to death. That's the hope that God offers. So if you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the bad news is, is that you're in your sin. When you're in your sin, you face, you face spiritual death and emotional death and physical death. You face all of those things. But there's another option. You don't have to be stuck in your sin. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he came as a seeking and saving Savior. And we care about you so desperately. That's why we share this every week. Is that we want you to trust in Jesus so that you can have joy and peace and eternal life. It doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect. But it does mean that you have the foundation of Christ that leads to eternal life. If you've never trusted in Christ, first you need to admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you messed up. Join the party. Listen, we've all messed up. We've all messed up. Don't let all these perfect smiles and great-looking families fool you, okay? We're all sinners. We've all messed up. And then you need to believe in Jesus. Believe that he lived a perfect life, died to death on the cross, rose from the dead. And if you believe in him, you can have eternal life as you commit your life to him. 
This is not the closing prayer, but, I, but I want, I'm almost done. But this is not the closing prayer. But I want to let you know right now that you can trust in Jesus where you're at. So let me pray for you if you'd like to do that. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge to you that I've sinned against you in many ways. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I want you to come in my life and be my Savior. Forgive me of all my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. Come into my life and be my Lord. Help me become the person that you want me to be. Amen. If you prayed that for the first time, please mark it on your card so that we know we can help you grow in your relationship with Christ. Listen, we all have punched God in the face. We all have messed up. And so I hope this week you take the challenge of the action step, even in the midst of getting all prepared for a hurricane and getting prepared for everything that you need to do, that maybe you'd ask a friend or a neighbor or someone that you see uh, fighting over a water bottle at the grocery store, and you'll say, what is wrong with this world? Just ask them that. And see if it leads into a gospel conversation. I'm going to be praying for you this week. Because we know that the fall has wrecked everything. As believers, we know that. But we also know the cure for death, don't we? We know the cure through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the best news that any of us have ever received. And we can't keep it to ourselves, can we? There's no way we should keep that to ourselves. It's the best news ever. Imagine being stuck in your sin and having no hope and no peace and no joy and deep down having emptiness. I felt it for 20 years of my life, and I'm so thankful someone shared the good news with me. That there's a seeking and saving Savior that loves us even in the midst of our sin and became a servant and died for us so that we could have eternal life. Let's share that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that we know the cure for sin and death. You are so good to us. We deserve to be stuck in our sin, but you have provided a way out through your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to trust in the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, our sin is so heinous, it's so awful. It's punching you in the face over and over and over but you are still gracious to us. You love us and you care for us. So help us to follow after you as Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.